Welcome to The Experts Speak, a product of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Dan Cartledge is a physician in South Florida who specializes in pain management. I felt it important to discuss the real challenges, the real techniques, and the real benefits of good and proper pain management, especially in the environment today when we hear so many discussions and, and it's confusing at times. Dr. Cartledge kindly agreed to talk to us about this. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What is it like in the process of making a proper diagnosis of pain? What set of criteria do do you use? And I guess the attachment is that is sometimes people, they may think they know it, maybe they don't. But what's the difference between acute pain and chronic pain? We start with a complex question. Sure. Well, very simple. I define chronic pain as pain that's lasting for six months or more. Acute pain is under six months. So really, these definitions just refer to the, the time frame, the chronicity of the pain itself. And for, to answer the first part of your question, in my opinion, the most important part of diagnosing pain and, of course, treating pain is the patient's story, the history of present illness. And basically, it's, it's very simple. You know, initially we ask, where's the location of the pain? What's the character of the pain? Is it burning electrical, you know, seemingly neuropathic related? Is it more dull, gnawing, possibly arthritic pain? Does the pain radiate? What aggravates the pain? What alleviates the pain? And I get a whole history of different treatments that the patients have tried and failed for this particular pain syndrome. And is there an element of the intensity of the pain? Does that become an issue up front or does that kind of become an issue down the road? From the beginning, we ask the patient a baseline average pain score, and we use the visual analog scale, which is up to 10. And what's the patient's average pain? They had to give us an average. How high does it go? You know, what's the worst pain intensity? Does it go from a 4? And then when they're playing golf, it goes up to an 8. So, yes, we, we will get a pain score um, at the initial visit and then ask the pain score the, for, over the last month if, if we see the patient monthly every time they come into the office to be seen. Do the people who come to you, is it more for chronic pain or more for acute pain? We see probably 98 plus percent chronic pain. These are typically patients that have been in pain for six months or more. And they've not had good success with their internists or other people. Yeah, I mean, you know, I see patients that have never addressed their pain with another physician. They've never been to a, a pain physician before. And I have patients that come to me that say, well, I've had five back surgeries and been to five different pain doctors already. What are you going to do for me differently? We really see all sorts of people at different stages of treatment. My next question is the hierarchy of pain management. Where do you start? When do you use physical therapy, aspirin, Advils, and how does it evolve up to surgery, narcotic pumps, oral narcotics? That's a huge question, but can you give us an overview? No, sure, absolutely. I always start conservative first. So first of all, I find out what treatments the patients have already had. Of course, I don't want to repeat something that they haven't responded favorably to. And things like physical therapy or not non-opioid analgesic would definitely be the first line. I am an interventionalist. I do procedures. I do a lot of spinal injections and joint injections. So in my opinion, sometimes it's actually safer and more effective to do possibly an injection, such as an epidural or even to inject
inject, let's say, spinal joints for spinal arthritis than to put a patient on long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which of course have their own risks, kidneys, cardiac, increasing risk for gastrointestinal bleed. The other thing is I do have a lot of geriatric patients who often have heart disease. A lot of times they're on anticoagulants, maybe it's just aspirin, or maybe they're on Coumadin or, or Plavix. So these patients can't be on non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So the typical Advil that someone takes over the counter that doesn't seem like a big deal, they can't take. So in some cases, it's going to be a different lineup of medications for these people. Ironically, a medication like an opioid is actually safer for them because there's no effect on the blood. There's really little or no cardiac effect. So it might be a different hierarchy for these patients with cardiac issues who are taking blood thinners or anticoagulants. Which jumps right to a question that when I told people I'm going to be interviewing you about pain management, they said, ask them about narcotics. Ask them about narcotics. I said, we will. We will. Sure. It seems that has gotten such a bad rap that it's not understood how to do it properly, and it's not always appropriate. But when you said that it may be safer than a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory for some folks, some people probably don't know where you're going with this. It, it's contrary to so much about what we hear in the media. Can you just comment a little bit on that, please? Sure. Even for myself, opioids are typically a last resort for patients. There's definitely a war on opioids, and I think in some part it's war. I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's sad to see so many opioid-related deaths, overdoses every year in our country. At the same time, there are a lot of legitimate chronic pain patients that are not abusing their opioids. They're taking them appropriately, and they're really helping them to live comfortable, productive lives and to be able to do the activities that they want to do. A lot of these, quote, legitimate chronic pain patients on opioids feel embarrassed. They feel that maybe the pharmacist is looking at them funny when they fill their prescriptions at Walgreens or CVS. So it can be hard for them. They almost feel like they're paying for the sins of the rest. So it, it's really a double-edged sword. The other problem is with all the restrictions in the state of Florida, you know, I can only really speak from my own state where I practice. There's been a lot of legislation. There's, there's new legislation restricting opioids and really controlling the way that physicians, who prescribes opioids and, and the way that physicians prescribe them. So there's actually a lot fewer prescription opioids out on the street. So what happens, addicts will always find a way. They're using more synthetics like heroin, unfortunately. The pendulum always seems to swing both ways. How do you determine what degree of skepticism might you have insofar as determining the legitimacy of pain? And especially if there are unusual dose patterns or levels that are needed, how do you determine that someone is legitimate in, in their need and are not looking for something else? Nothing, of course, is foolproof, but a few things that we do in our office. Number one, we use an opioid risk assessment tool. It's basically a little multiple choice test that patients take on a tablet just to look for certain risk factors that addicts have in common. The other thing is we do urine toxicology. We do urine drug screening. So we're going to check to see if there's any either prescription or non-prescription opioids or illicit substances in the urine. And we also, the great thing about Florida, is they have a prescription drug monitoring program. So every time I prescribe an opioid or, or see a new patient, I will check their prescription history and I can see who prescribed them what, if someone's prescribing them Xanax or their doctor shopping and they're filling multiple opioid prescriptions from multiple doctors.
doctors. So we do have some checks and balances, of course. You can always, you can always be fooled. Unfortunately, that can occur. So in talking to you and listening to you, rather, it just seems that you try to engage the patient with a much better relationship. I personally think that a great number of the problems society has had with inappropriate use of narcotics, allegedly for pain, is that there really is a very weak, if at all, relationship between the doctor and the patient. That has always struck me as something that doesn't really get enough, um, again, I'll go back to the term, media coverage. Your thoughts? Sure, absolutely. I agree. You get experience, and you're absolutely right when you're seeing patients on a regular basis. You get a feel for them. They're not acting right. They're asking questions. They seem to be focused on very specific medications. There's little clues that we look for, these, quote, drug-seeking behaviors. And it becomes problematic. Let's jump to the next hot topic. There has been a tremendous amount of discussion about the role of marijuana and marijuana products in the treatment of pain. It's confusing. And of course, as the caveat, we certainly don't want to give someone who has cancer or Lou Gehrig's disease or some other horrible condition. We want to give them whatever they need. Sure, absolutely. When someone comes into you, how do you address the marijuana issue? With the medical marijuana, I actually refer out to physicians that really do a great job and really have a great understanding of this treatment. I definitely think that there's a benefit to medical marijuana. Unfortunately, I just don't have the, the time. It's not covered by insurance, so you have to have separate charts for patients just to follow their medical marijuana treatment. I do refer out for that. Something that I do prescribe, or I, I shouldn't even say prescribe because it's really over-the-counter, but something that I recommend is CBD oil, which if it doesn't have the THC, patients can buy that over-the-counter, and there, there definitely seems to be an analgesic benefit to that as well. Even the actual oil seems to have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties that can be helpful without the THC. And then, of course, medical marijuana with the THC seems to have an additional benefit as well. I've seen some good results. I find that patients with fibromyalgia seem to be responding very well to both the CBD, the non-THC CBD, as well as the medical marijuana. Like everything else, I've had patients not respond to either, just like everyone's body is different. You, you never know what people are going to respond to. But I definitely have read a lot of studies on medical marijuana. They definitely seem to be positive for treating pain. I hope that with really good studies, we'll find a definite appropriate use for this molecule. Sure. So you can treat pain with an injection. You can treat pain with Advil, with spinal cord stimulators, with marijuana. What causes pain? Is there a universal cause of pain or is part of the problem is that it's caused by so many different pathologies? There really are so many different pathologies, and there's neuropathic pain, which can be caused from dysfunction of the nerves, peripheral neuropathy, or even spinal stenosis, as well as arthritis, which is an inflammatory process. There's nociceptive pain, which is the result of tissue damage. So pain can be very complex, and even just looking, if I had to say what's my most common pain complaint, it's chronic low back pain. So what's causing this chronic low back pain? There's so many factors. You know, there can be degenerative disc disease. There can be spinal stenosis where there's impingements of either the spinal cord or the nerve roots. And then there's also arthritic pain as well. Our spine gets arthritic. We get arthritic joints over time. It's my job to figure out what's the pain generator or what are the pain generators. A lot of times it's multifactorial where it's it's a little bit of everything. They have arthritis. They have spinal stenosis. They have degenerative disc disease. So I like when I see a new patient, I like to talk to the patient and 
get a history before I even look at their imaging because I don't want to have a preconceived notion of what's causing their pain. You see an MRI, there's a herniated disc at L4, L5, that's the pain, that's the pain. You know, I don't want to do that because that may not be their primary pain generator. So I like to see the patient and get their story without making assumptions based on imaging. So the imaging I always look at after I talk to the patient and, and see what their complaints are. And when you talk to somebody, obviously you open up a big door into their whole psychological and cultural background and makeup. What role do all of these things have? And some of it's obvious we know it does, but what role do you try to bring into your practice the psychological and cultural aspects of pain? Sure, very good question. There's the chicken or the egg. People in chronic pain tend to have a higher instance of depression. I mean, it, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, it's not an easy um, life to have pain all the time. And then at the same time, people who are chronically depressed, I find a lot of times seem to have an amplification of pain signals. You know, in other words, pain seems to be intensified in patients in a depressed mental state. So there are certain antidepressants that are actually indicated for chronic pain, such as Cymbalta. So it's interesting, even some Opioids like Nucinta, which is Dependidol, seems to have an effect on serotonin levels where it actually increases the serotonin levels. So it's not just an opioid that binds to the pain receptors and relieves pain that way, but it's actually you know, creating increased serotonin levels and having a pain-relieving effect centrally through that as well. So it's very interesting. A lot of times I will refer to a psychiatrist for patients where I feel the depression is a factor in amplifying the pain or it's, it's a, again, a result of the pain that needs to be treated to improve this patient's overall well-being. It's an interesting point because you talked about pain signal amplification. Is it that some of these medicines simply, shall we say, turn down the volume or turn down the sensitivity to the signal versus giving an injection of steroids, which reduces the inflammation? So one is more or less if I'm saying this correctly, one is more or less reducing the problem, the generator of the pain versus the response to the pain. Right, absolutely. If you think about what an opioid does, it really blocks the pain receptors in the brain. So it's really having a central effect in reducing the pain. Whereas if if I inject arthritic spinal joints, I'm reducing the inflammation at the first level at the pain generator itself. So absolutely, two completely different ways of treating the same thing. And necessary to make that separation clearly. Right. And sometimes the patient really needs a combination of both. I mean, the injection may reduce their pain by 50% and maybe a medication can reduce it another 20%. So together in combination, they're getting 70% relief of that particular symptom. Which is not 100%, but it certainly is better than not. Exactly. And and that brings up a good point too. I will have patients who come in who who just really have significant pain generating pathology. I mean, significant spinal stenosis, multi-levels. And I think you need to have a good rapport and be honest with the patient and say, listen, I don't think that we're going to be able to get you pain-free. I think maybe we'll be lucky if we can reduce your pain by 50%. So I think it's really making that expectation. I see that all the time. I, I have patients come in who I'll look at their imaging and there's, there's just so much pathology going on that there, there's no injection in the world or no medication in the world that's really going to take their pain away completely. I, I try to let them know that in the beginning. These are reasonable goals. You're not going to be pain-free. No one wants to hear that, but I think you have to be honest. Absolutely. So what about then if someone is like that? And and again, I, I'm not privy enough to the ins and outs of chronic pain management like you, but when do 
do you get to something like a spinal cord stimulator? When do you get to a rhizotomy? What's sort of at the higher end of interventions? Rhizotomy is, is really a fantastic procedure for patients. What you're treating with a rhizotomy is the pain related to spinal arthritis. With a rhizotomy, you're basically using radiofrequency waves to destroy sensory nerves. So this is a big misunderstanding. You know, you can't do an ablation for nerves that have a motor component. In other words, relate to muscles because that, that's what gives you your strength, your muscle strength. I have a lot of patients coming in saying, oh, I have a friend who had a rhizotomy. She's pain free. I want to have a rhizotomy. But the nerves that are detecting their pathology can't be ablated because they're not just sensory nerves, also motor nerves. So people with sciatica, they can't get a rhizotomy to help that type of pain because those nerves involved are not only sensory nerves, but they're also motor nerves that are responsible for the muscles that help you walk. So a rhizotomy is really done specifically for nerves that innervate spinal joints. So it's really a treatment for spinal arthritis. You can do an ablation for the spinal facet joints, which are the range of motion joints in the spine. And that can be done in the cervical spine, the thoracic spine, or the lumbar spine, and also the sacroiliac joints, which are basically where the pelvis attaches to the sacrum, those range of motion joints. So rhizotomy is very specific. Once these nerves are ablated through a rhizotomy, patients can have relief for typically six months or even up to a year. The nerves will grow back, but luckily nerves grow back very slowly, so they're left with a reduction of their pain for that period of time you know, until the new nerves grow back, and then, of course, the procedure can be repeated. What about a spinal cord stimulator, which, if I remember my history, is related to the gate theory of transmitting pain signals? Is, is, am I correct? Exactly, exactly. So basically, you're using electricity to block the pain signals. Spinal cord stimulation works best for 